This is Talking Soundtracks with Jason Jury on the Cinematic Sound Radio Network. Hello again, my name is Jason Drury and welcome once again to Talking Soundtracks on the Cinematic Sound Radio Podcast. Emmy nominated and eight times ASCAP award winning composer Craig Safan has scored feature films, television, and documentaries, as well as having three albums of his own music released. He has been commissioned to compose for ballet as well as for live performances of silent films. Safan's music has been released on over 50 albums, most recently in early 2021 with LAX, Craig's love letter to Los Angeles. In August 2021 for Talking Soundtracks, I had the great pleasure of talking to Craig Safan via Zoom at his home in Santa Monica, California. In part one of his two-part interview, amongst other things, we talk about how his musical career started and how Craig ended up scoring for film and television. And we also talk about his most famous work, his score for The Last Starfighter. And of course, during the show, we'll be hearing samples of the award-winning music of the legendary Craig Safan. Craig Safan, welcome to Talking Soundtracks. Firstly, how did your interest in music start? Well, my mother was a pianist. She grew up in a very, very small town in Texas called Laredo. And music sort of helped to get her out of there. She went to the Cleveland Conservatory. And then when she got married and moved to Los Angeles, this is after World War II, she almost gave up music. I think it was more of a vehicle of social movement. But she always played a little bit. We had a little piano. And I just started picking up things by ear when I was probably five and a half, six. And she would show me things on the piano and then at a certain point, she said, you know, your mother shouldn't teach you. I'm going to get you a piano teacher. But nobody likes to hear classical music at parties. My mother was a party girl, and she didn't really, you know, nobody wanted to hear her play uh, whatever, Rachmaninoff. But when she tried to play popular music, which in her case was, you know, like Benny Goodman kind of swing, she was so stiff because she couldn't get out of that she had no idea just how to groove with the music. So she found me this wonderful young teacher named Helene Merich, who taught me improvisation from my very first lesson. And I'm still friends with her today. She's in her 90s. And besides being a wonderful jazz pianist, she was also a classical violinist and still 
plays in an orchestra here. So I got the best of both worlds. I got a great teacher, but I was improvising from my very first lesson. And I think that's why I'm a composer, because I never really knew much about classical music until I got into college. All jazz, rock and roll, and ragtime. Did you have any formal music education? No, I was a fine arts major in college. My musical education, except for my piano teacher, was totally just my own self-taught. I mean, she taught me a lot. We did many kinds of music, but we never did classic music. But I remember when I was probably around 13, I had read Leonard Bernstein's book called The Joy of Music. And he talked about this great piece of music called The Rite of Spring. It sounded so great that I got my parents to buy me a copy. And that was the first piece of actual classical music that I ever heard was the Rite of Spring. So I sort of started in the 20th century and loved it. But when it came time to going to university, I mean, I was really a good pianist. I could play anything, play by ear. I was writing songs by that time. I had two bands in high school. One was a, like a rock and roll cover band and the other was a jazz trio because I was really into like piano jazz, like Thelonious Monk and Bill Evans. And I was able to go see them at, at this little club in Los Angeles called Shelley's Manhole that was owned by the famous drummer Shelley Mann. But see, again, my teacher, we would work on two pianos, go back and forth improvising. And then she would go and literally from the record album, transcribe Thelonious's solos. And then I would learn how to play them. So that's as complicated as if you're playing classical music. It's still a brain twister. But when I got into college, I never really thought of being a music major. And my parents never thought music was a career. And I became an art major. I told my parents I'm going to become an architect. And that sort of placated them. But I was always a very good artist. I was the art editor of my yearbook. I was I was very into, into fine arts. I painted since I was very young. And so I became a fine arts major. And then during my years at college, I kept gravitating more and more to the music world. I talked my way into the electronic music studio. This is in 1967. Every night I would be in there plugging in the bootless system. There was no keyboard. You couldn't even play a melody on the thing, just sounds. And I worked in a practice room. And I started writing original musicals, college, and then people heard, oh, he, he, he knows how to read and write music, but he also can play rock and roll. And so suddenly I got a, people would go, oh, you want to arrange this track? I'm, I was in Boston. I'm doing a record for Warner Brothers and I need some strings. Do you know how to do that? And I went, oh yeah, I, I, I could figure it out. And I took a class in orchestration and would read the book and go, oh, okay, well, this is what a violin can do. I could read it. And I would hire players in the Boston area and we'd do it. So I started actually arranging back when I was, I guess, 19 years old. I don't know, I was pretty young. And I, I was just fascinated with music. I, I would spend every night in the practice room or in the electronic music studio. I would write original songs. I would write musicals. And all the while, I was a fine arts major. <laughs> but I think finally my advisor in fine arts went, you know, Craig, you're you're spending a lot of time at the music building. I, I understand that that's your passion. Maybe you should change your major. Go across the campus and be a music major. And I thought, well, maybe he's right. Maybe in my second or third year into college. And so I went and I took the first course, which was, you know, beginning theory or something. And it was so bloody boring. It was like, 
man, I was playing Thelonious Monk and Bill Evans when I was like 13 or 12. And you're showing me one, four, five, you know, you're showing me the most basic stuff. This is a bore. Except for a few courses here and there, I would, I never went back. When did you decide to go into film and TV music? It was totally accidental. It was serendipity. I had come back after I graduated college. I was given what's called a Watson Foundation Fellowship, which allowed me to come to London for a year and independently work on my music. And I thought, I don't want to live in a city. I've always lived in big cities. And I, I just got on the tube and just went every stop. There was what was called the green belt around London. And I just got on the tube and I would stop at every little town and go and see if there was anything for rent. And finally, I was almost to Epping and I found a caretaker's cottage on a Arabian horse farm near a town called Thaden Boys. And I rented it for the year. When I finished the year in, in London, I came back to Los Angeles and I started writing pop songs and performing with my brother, Mark. I wrote a lot of songs. I arranged record albums for different bands, including Emmylou Harris. And I never gave a thought to film music. And then one day I was still not making a living. I was working part-time at my father's had a jewelry store. And that was the only way I could really earn a living. I had to work put in a few days a week. And I, I hated it. I hated putting on a suit and tie. I hated the whole thing. I hated business. And one day I got a phone call while I was down there from an old friend from my college. And she said, Craig, I've gotten married. She worked on the musicals I wrote. I got married and my husband is going to AFI, the American Film Institute in Los Angeles. And he's made a low budget horror film on super 16 millimeter film. You're the only musician I know in Los Angeles and he needs to put some music to it. Do you know who could do it? And I literally was on the phone standing outside on Broadway in downtown LA and I went, I'll do it. Oh, really? Yeah, sure. Okay, great. And I did the film. It never was released. The director became very famous over the years, John McTiernan, who did like Nomads and... Uh, you know, the, the Bruce Willis. Uh, Die Hard and Predator. Die Hard and Hunt for Red October. I never worked for him again, although we sort of stayed friendly. But I did this film called The Demon's Daughter. It was never released. And I did it with a little orchestra. Like a, I, I called about eight people and I played piano and they were all, you know, orchestral instruments. And we did this sort of Stravinsky ish score. And I loved it. And I thought, this is what I need to be doing. This is what I love. I'm trying to write hit songs where you're looking for the tiniest little bullseye to get into a hit song. It's not my talent. My talent is broad. I write in every style. I love all the different styles of music. And this is what I love to do. And that's how I got into film music. It was literally, I did this thing just serendipitously and I loved it. And I immediately started figuring out how I could make this a career. I hadn't even thought of it as a career. I didn't even know. This was before they taught film composers at the universities or Berkeley. It wasn't even uh, around, I don't think, in that time, you know, uh, Berkeley in Boston. And I just pursued it like crazy. And my career literally jumped like 
quantum leap within a year or two, I was doing uh, major features with big orchestras. I, it was just crazy how it happened. And one of those features you worked on a big orchestra, and I've listened to it again today, it's, it's still good as ever, is Wolfen. Great score, but unfortunately it wasn't it was rejected. <laughs> well, I got hired to do this. I was fairly young. I guess I was in my early 30s. And the director, Michael Wadley, had never directed a feature before. He had directed Woodstock, the documentary. And he wanted this really weird score. And I had been hanging out with John Carigliano and gotten into what's called aleatoric music, where you write events more than notes. It's like, okay, between bar three and four trombone, you go from your lowest note to your highest note at your own speed. And that was a kind of modern music. I said, I'm going to do this kind of music. No electronics, just a big orchestra, but it's going to sound as weird as electronics. Great. Then I meet with the producer and he says, Craig, I'm so glad you're doing this film. We're going to want a real John Williams score and this kind of, you know, and I'm going, Mm, these two people are making two different films, which happens more often than you'd imagine. It's happened in other films too, I could mention, but the producer has one film in mind and the director has a different film in mind and you're in the middle. And in my naivete at the, in those, that day, I went, I mean, the director hired me, not the producer. I'm going to do what he wants. He's the director. And as the movie got into a deeper and deeper hole in terms of the director's cut, which was never finished, it was way too long, it wasn't working, they were unhappy with it. I hadn't even scored it at this point. Somewhere about two weeks before scoring, the director got fired. They brought in a new director. And the new director basically let me go ahead and score the picture, which I did. And a day or two after, I get a call from my agent that they're throwing the picture out. And then I guess they brought James in. I think he wrote the score in, in a week or two. They didn't have much time. And that was the story. The, I mean, the story was basically they fired the director and they pretty much fired everybody else and recut the entire picture. And there was a saying my agent told me at the time, Hal Bart was an old timer. And he represented Miklos Rosa. And he told me, Craig, Miklos told me the mark of maturity in a young composer is having his first score thrown out. And so I took minimal solace in that. <laughs> but I was miserable because I really put my heart and soul into that. I mean, the good news was that for some reason, people heard the score and it became sort of like this underground thing. And at a certain point, Doug Fake from Intrada Records, we went in and did a sort of a gray market version of it, a composer's thing. And then a number of years later, he released it and James score. So there's now two CDs, one of James and one of mine, which is great. That score has lived on and people talk about it all the time. I mean, it was, it's a pretty weird piece of music, but... It's just part of the business. You know, part of the business is that you're not really the boss. You're just a, a cog in a wheel that's often very political.
I have both schools, but I like them both. I like yours as well as much as James Horner's. Both yeah, they're very schools. different. They're different. They're different. The following year, you worked on one of the films your music is best associated with, The Last Starfighter. Tell us about your working relationship with director Nick Castle and your work on The Last Starfighter, which I think is still one of the great epic sci-fi scores even to this day. Thank you. Uh, yeah, um, well, Nick was right out of USC and he was doing a movie called Tag, The Assassination Game, which is available, uh, I think was released on CD at some point. I think it was Linda Hamilton's first film, actually. The producer's father was friends with Elmer Bernstein and they wanted Elmer to do the score. And Elmer was one of my mentors. He really helped me a lot. He was a great guy. I'm still extremely close friends with his son, Peter. And they approached Elmer, and Elmer, you know, it was a really low-budget, killer slasher film. And Elmer didn't really want to do it. And between him and we had the same agent, my agent said, why don't you tell him Craig should do it? And so Elmer did. He said, I, I'm busy. I can't do it. Use Craig Saffin. So I got the gig. And Nick loved the score. It was filmed in almost a L.A. noir way. So I was able to get a big orchestra together and do sort of that Chinatown noir, dark kind of thing. And I mixed a lot of electronics into it as well, which I was really into electronics at that point. So we did this film. It was a little film. Nick got The Last Starfighter uh, a year or two later, said I want Craig to do it. And they all said, okay. And I had never done a big score like that. I mean, I had done some big orchestral scores, but not that particular style. And that's how I got that job. It was a, a really, really great experience. I mean, I loved working on that movie. And I was, Nick, I think of all the directors I've worked with, he's so supportive. He knows music very well, but he's not a micromanager. He listens and makes a few comments, but he really trusts you. And uh, I did 
four or five movies with him. I did quite a few movies with him. But Starfighter turned out to be one of the memorable films in my career. And it's still played by orchestras all over. And they're still working on a sequel. I guess they're closer now than they ever were. There were big legal issues surrounding it for a long time, but I hear they've been resolved. So there may be another Starfighter in the works at some point, So, which would be fun. The challenge of that film for me was that you had to do something reminiscent of Star Wars. I mean, you couldn't say, I'm going to do this all with weird sounds, or I'm going to do this all electronically, or I'm going to do this with a a piano and a slide guitar. You couldn't go in those kind of directions unless you wanted your score thrown out, right? (laughs) Because they knew what they wanted. They wanted a space opera, and that was what was happening at that time. And it was about 83 or 82 when I started on that film. So my take on it was, okay, I can do that, but let's mix it up a bit. I don't want to just copy John Williams. And I sort of figured out a few ways to avoid that being just a copycat and make it my own. And one way was to add electronics. So the score has a couple of synthesizers that played live in the same room with this like 80 piece orchestra.
Another way I did it was there's really one theme in the whole movie. There are sub themes, but basically there's just that da, 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 da. There's that one theme. So rather than have a different motif for every character, the way Star Wars was, there's pretty much one piece of music that's played for adventure, for triumph, for wistfulness, for love. It's played in so many different ways. In my brain, I called it the heart theme because, again, the movie was really not about the story, which was fighting the Armada and Latin outer stuff. It was really about leaving home and the love you have for home and finding a new life for oneself. It was a very emotional movie, and I think that's why it's lived on because it pushes a lot of really interesting buttons for people who are in small towns or even big towns want to leave and want to do something original, want to have their own life and not just fall into what's expected of them by society. And that's what Nick is so good at, Nick Castle. He's so good at that emotional one-on-one. The characters are, are so great. And it's surprising when you look back at the movie, how much time is spent on developing the characters and their relationships. It's not just, boom, let's go out and shoot things down. And there's a lot of very quiet time in that movie. And so that was one of my ways of making it my own. I also sort of tried to steer away. This is a little more esoteric. I tried to steer away from Holst, the planets. My understanding is Star Wars had originally been tempt-tracked with that. And also Howard Hansen's Second Symphony, I think, was, was a key. And I started listening to Sibelius. And so a little bit of a different kind of emotion. It's hard to describe, but that's... I did that for, for me, because he orchestrated so beautifully. And it worked really well. It's got one of those great recordings as well. Really wonderful it, sound. Yeah, it sounds, Lloyd, the sound Lloyd, is great. Lloyd Burbridge did do a sound rec- recording of that score. I think it was on the MGM scoring stage, wasn't it? It was on the MGM scoring stage. I didn't really know the mixer. I had two mixers. I had him, who I don't remember his name, as I had never met him, and then a guy named Rick Riccio, who did more pop stuff, and he handled the synthesizers a little more. And it was on the MGM scoring stage, which is my favorite place to record. I've recorded there more times than I can, can remember. But it's just, it not only has such great history, that scoring stage, between The Wizard of Oz, Gone with the Wind, you know, there were so many great scores. But the room sounds so good. I remember the day of the first recording session. And this is before you did mock-ups of everything. Now your whole score is mocked up to the point where you almost don't need to record it. It's so mocked up on the computer. But in those days, you only heard it on a keyboard. You only heard your piano playing that melody. And I remember just walking in there and certain players get there early to the recording session to warm up. And the 
French horn player, I think it was David Duke, was there just practicing that. And it was just resonating. That room needs is so resonant. And I went, wow. It was the first time I actually heard it played on a French horn. And it was so beautiful. I just thought, wow, this is going to be fun. So, and it was. It's a great recording studio. I've seen it being performed in concerts to this day. I think you recorded a concert, I think, in in, in Spain or? Yes, it's on, on YouTube uh, or on my website. It was 2014 or 15. Yeah, I was at the International Film Music Festival. It was in Cordoba that year. And that was one of the pieces I did. It was a, I wrote a suite for it for that occasion, like a 12-minute suite. And it was really, really fun. And the orchestra was great. It's not that easy to play, but it's it's the brass really has to work. Talking soundtracks will return shortly. You're listening to the Cinematic Sound Radio Network. It's Talking Soundtracks with Jason Jury. Now, there's another score which I associate you with. Well, in a way, like two goals at it in some respect. Remo Williams. Um, oh, yeah. It's 1985, which has, recording-wise, there's a wonderful brass in it. I think it's wonderfully recorded by Dennis Sands. Yeah, Dennis recorded that. What are your memories of working on Remo? And also its subsequent TV pilot in 1988. Well, the pilot, I have virtually no memory of it. It was like a week of work and reducing the size of the orchestra for a Mm. television show. But the actual movie was a lot of fun. 
The director was Guy Hamilton, who had done a lot of the early Bond films. And he was quite a character, shall we say. I did it at that point. I had a synclavier. And so I was able to sort of mock up some of it on the synclavier. And he, he liked what he was hearing. And Dennis Sands did an amazing job. So the, the challenge of that was I was trying to do something a little different. So I thought, well, I'll have the orchestra, but I'm also going to do a lot of synth. But instead of the synth being live in the room, I'm going to record it ahead of time and overdub this orchestra. Then on top of that, the sub character was Korean. And I thought, you know, I'm going to find out what Korean music is like. I'm not going to just do generic Asian music. That's horrible. I don't want to do that. So luckily, we have a very large Korean population here in Los Angeles. I understand it's the largest Korean population outside of Seoul. So there are lots of people. I went to the music, uh, the ethnomusicology library at UCLA, and I listened to lots of Korean music. And then I found there was a professor there who actually had a Korean orchestra. So I went to him and I learned about each instrument and I listened to it and how to write for it. And I went, okay, so I'll have about a eight piece Korean orchestra and I'll overdub that. And the only way you could do that at the time, because this again was pre-digital, was you'd have a 24 track tape, which wasn't enough. And then you could slave a second 24 track tape, which gave you 48 discrete tracks of music. And so I wrote for that. It's easily the most complex score I ever wrote. It's amazing. It all sounds of one piece, but it does. And the challenges were to integrate the synths with the orchestra. So they sounded, you know, like they were playing together. And then the Korean group to make them integrate. And there were a lot of tuning issues because these people were playing basically ethnic instruments. So we really had to work on the tuning and then the timing, because the only way to put all that together was to work with click tracks. So everybody is playing to a click in their head, beep, 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 bum, bum, bum. And they're playing to that, which isn't that easy. And I remember conducting the Korean orchestra, which was the last element I put on. And there was like an eight bar passage going from quiet to very loud, right? Right. And I would do it. And every time they do it, they would speed up. And I said, you know, you have to play it getting loud, but don't get faster. And they go, excuse me, sir, but we always play faster when we get louder. <laughs> you know, that was their answer. And I went, okay, well, not this time. But, that was, you know, there were a lot of challenges and fun memories. And I really have to say that Dennis Sands did a, an amazing job because it was not easy making all those elements glue together. So again, I wanted a big hero's theme, which was the brass you're mentioning, but I wanted a, a pop sound. So there was a lot of synth. I wanted magical sounds. I wanted the Korean sounds, which were, were fun. They became almost comic at times with, the, with some of the, the training sessions that Remo goes through. And, it, and it, was, it was a fun score, but it was definitely complicated, but it was a lot of fun. Thank you. 
I've got three versions of Remo yeah. Williams. The, I think the promo use released, the Intrada yeah. release, and in the recent Note for Note release, which I played on my archive show. And I, I never got tired of listening to it. It's still, it's still a wonderful story. It's still enjoy, very enjoyable. And I, I said the, the brass stuff, and also the, I like the firework crackling on, on the theme. I love that little bit at the start. It's like, oh, yeah, that's uh, that, that's. that's a, that was gunshots. The gun, the gunshots. That's it. The gunshots. gunshots. <laughs> yeah, it's it. funny because when I, I did that, uh, I wrote an overture for that for that same uh, concert in Spain, and they they would not let me have gunshot. They wouldn't let me use a starter p- pistol <laughs> because of you know terrorism and all that. You couldn't just have someone walk up on stage and go. <laughs> so I sort of tried to simulate it with the drum hits, but it, it's not the same. But uh, yeah, there there are, and there's also another release on Perseverance that uh, they released. But I love the note for note release because they went back to the original masters and they re-digitized everything, and it sounds so much better than any other version. They and also they, of course, now you put on everything. Back then you would just put on the main cues, but now. People who want to buy these soundtracks, they want just every little piece of music. So it sounds great. And the vinyl sounds great too. There's a vinyl. If you're into that kind of thing.
He worked on a number of anthology series, I think, after female, yes. like um, Steven Spielberg's Amazing Stories. There's a couple of good scores on there. Twilight Zone. And an episode, yeah. I think, of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, which I heard saw a couple when it was on, on ITV a few, long time ago. Yeah, yeah. yeah. How were you hired to score the episodes that you worked on? Well, I, uh, on television, it's really, at that point, it was my agent who would be talking to the music supervisors or the heads of music. Uh, Amazing Stories was universal. I think Hitchcock was universal. Twilight Zone, I don't remember. I remember doing it. I did a lot of the Twilight Zones. I did quite a few. And they were anthology series, Twilight Zone and Hitchcock, and even Amazing Stories. You know, Amazing Stories was produced by Spielberg. And I think when you look at the people who scored those, it was just sort of a who's who of the the working composers of that period. And I was, I was one of them. And they were a lot of fun to do. I liked doing the anthologies because I might be hired to do uh, an episode of Twilight Zone, which maybe had three short stories on it. And I go, okay, I don't want them to all sound alike. I'll do one electronically. I'll do one, you know, with a small orchestra. I'll do one with a big orchestra. You'd want to make each one have a unique voice which was a lot of fun for me. Was there one that you remember that stood out for you? Did you enjoy scoring the most? Amazing stories were a lot of fun. An interesting, funny sort of story. I did one, yeah, it was called Wedding Ring that Danny DeVito directed. And I was friends with Danny because of Cheers. And I'd become friends with Rhea Perlman, who was Danny's wife. The school that of Cheers and before that Taxi and things, was minimal use of music. I mean, music was like, just get me from one location to the other and then shut up. And that's how Danny wanted to do this amazing story. So there was maybe 15 minutes of music in it, a whole hour show. And it sounded great. Everybody loved it. And then I get the call from my agent (laughs) the next day. Uh, Spielberg likes what you did, Craig, but you need to go back in and write 20 more minutes of music. I went, okay, I'm good with it. So I I had to literally go back and fill in all those places that in The Last Starfighter or Remo Williams, you would have scored because that's the style. And when you're doing Amazing Stories that's produced by Spielberg, that's the style. The style is there's a lot of music. When you're doing Taxi or Cheers or Frasier, any of those, there's you know, a few minutes of music in an episode. That's it. As you said, there's so many good composers of those series, like Amazing Stories had Jerry Goldsworth one episode. Yeah. Had yeah, Billy Goldberg. Bruce Braun did quite a few of them as well. And, and there's yeah. actually some great, great composers on there. I've got all the, all the box set of those. All the I, I have that too. And yeah, a, I, and a feed is Twilight Zone as well. But we get your, your eight episodes. So I've got plenty of depths to go through. Yeah, I did a lot of the Twilight Zones. The Amazing Stories, I did two episodes. One for Matthew Robbins and one for Danny. On Hitchcock, I think I just did the first episode, which was three stories. Did one for Tales of the Crypt. You know, there was a lot of that kind of stuff going on. They were written quickly. <laughs> and good as well. I, I listened to the, both the Amazing Stories one. I think the, the one with the Reading, that has a song at the start of it, doesn't it? Is that, that the one? Yeah, that's an old song uh, called On the Boardwalk of Atlantic City. And uh, Danny wanted to use that because it took place in Atlantic City, which is in New Jersey. 
Atlantic City, I guess, to a, a British audience is sort of like Brighton. It's sort of like a lot of, well, there's legalized gambling and there's just a lot of people that come in for a day or two and get their yayas out. And there's a slightly seedy aspect to it. <laughs> um, but uh, th that was that was a good one. On the shore, by the sea, by the way, by tomorrow, by this time, on the boardwalk in Atlantic City, we will walk in a dream. On the boardwalk in Atlantic City, life will be peaches and cream. Then, where the salt water air brings out a lady's charms, there on a rolling chair.
you just mentioned Cheers, but next question is about Cheers. Tell us about your work on this much-remembered comedy series which lasted for 270 episodes, to which you were credited in all of them, and your work on the famous theme of the series. I didn't write the theme. The theme existed when I was hired, and I produced it. You know, I was in the studio and produced the music, but it was already... Jimmy Burroughs had already, who was the director and one of the producers, had already gotten that song. And he said, well, do you want to do all the rest of the music? We were friends. And I said, sure. And it was like a side job almost. So what I did is for 11 years, I wrote all of the background score, So, which, which I did with a small band and sort of weird band music. I thought my concept was that, uh, okay, it's this bar, it's one or two in the morning, and we're playing, and some guy comes in, he plays clarinet, and he's really not very good. <laughs> he's sort of, you know, it's sort of it's lazy barroom music. And that was from the first episode. That was the sound of all the background music. And that's really what I did. It was almost like a side job there because it was very little music. And they would call me up and say, Craig, you want to do three episodes next week? And I go, sure. And I'd write them the night before the session, and we'd go in and record, you know, three episodes in a couple of hours. It was always more or less the same band, you know, a few changes here and there. That we'll come to the end of part one of our interview with Craig Safan on the Cinematic Sound Radio Podcast. And if you want to know what music was played on this part of the show, please go to the track listings on the show's webpage at cinematicsound.net. Join us again soon for part two of this interview. But until then, for me, Jason Drury, is take care and happy listening. Thank you for listening to the Cinematic Sound Radio Podcast. I want to thank Tim Burton for providing his voice for all the bumpers you hear throughout the program, and to David Casina for providing Cinematic Sound Radio's theme music. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, please email us at cinematicsound at yahoo.com. You can find us on social media, on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And wherever you're listening to us today, please take a moment right now to leave us a rating and a review of the podcast. You can get a Cinematic Sound Radio t-shirt at our T Public store. You can join our Patreon at patreon.com slash cinematic sound radio. And don't forget to check us out on the web at cinematicsound.net. <laughs>